Hello and welcome back to A Reason for Hope. I'm your host, Mario Costabile, and I am so glad that you're listening and hanging out with us today. A Ray of Hope evangelizes through film, music, and events. And this podcast really gives us another outlet to just go deeper into our faith. There seems to be so much confusion about our faith today. So many different interpretations of the truth are springing up everywhere, and relativism is growing like a wild weed. Our moral barometer is just non-existent, and we have become so influenced by our culture that we have literally become our culture. And we don't even know that it's happening to us right now. How did this happen? And if and when we recognize this, can it be stopped? Well, the answer is yes. Today's guest is the prolific author and speaker, Father Dwight Longenecker. This episode is really going to surprise you, and it's going to bring you to a level of thinking that you may never have experienced. So welcome to A Reason for Hope, and here we go. Okay, so welcome back to A Reason for Hope, David. It's always great hanging with you. It's fantastic to be here. It's fantastic to be here as well. Always have a lot of fun doing this sort of stuff. So I have something to report to you. Okay. I have actually two surprises. Well, one's not really a surprise, but it's for the audience that it's a surprise. And you're looking at me bewildered because (laughs) we didn't talk about this. But uh, it is kind of exciting. So uh, those of you that are into podcasts, there is a website that rates podcasts. It's called Top 80 Catholic Podcasts. And I'm very proud to announce that we have rated 39 on 39. that list. We're, the 30, yeah, we're working toward That's awesome. getting up there. In well, the, we're in the top 40. We're, we're, we're in the top 40. <laughs> you know, as musicians, we've always wanted to be in the top 40. So we are in the top 40, man. Isn't that great? Awesome. So, and it, it's exciting because we've been doing the podcast now, what would you say, a year and a half, almost two years? Yeah, just you not, know, And we conceived even. it even three years ago, wanting to do this. So we're excited that people are receiving it. We're excited that people are responding to it. And most importantly, we're excited that we're serving the church, right? Yeah, we're helping absolutely. people, you know? Absolutely. So the other thing that is not a surprise to you, but it's a surprise to our guests, is that— um, you know, you've got some exciting news to share with everyone. Yes. Um, I have a book being published, which I'm wow, very excited about. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah, pretty excited about That's, it. It's and called, this is your second, right? Yes. Well, yeah. this is my first academic work. Um, the and fir- that means? That means basically it's a— it's Hard a, to read? It's, <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a scholarly work. And it's written, uh, it's an academic work, so it's written for scholars uh, in theology. So I can't um, read it? No, because I write actually in a very conversational you way. Do. You do. And uh, even my more scholarly writing is, I think, pretty accessible. Great. Part of this, too, is that it was a, a revision of my doctoral dissertation. Mm. So I got to make improvements uh, to it to make it more readable. That's awesome. Uh, and get rid of some of those things that— you only put in doctoral dissertations, but you don't put in books that you're yeah. you're trying to sell in a, to a wider audience. Mm-hmm. So the publisher is Aroka Press. It's a new Catholic publisher. Wow! Uh, really, they're producing some dynamite stuff. I'm really excited to have been connected to them. And the title of the book, at least tentatively, is Healing the Culture and the Family According to John Paul II. 
Wow. So, uh, so it's basically, you know, a, a look at what ails us and what John Paul II thought the roots of that problem were, and then how mm. he responded to it. That's that's awesome. That's exciting. It is. It's really so, exciting. so let's go a little bit deeper. So tell tell us about what it's about and some of the subjects that you cover. Sure. So, um, <clears throat> so you know, if I think that everybody pretty much knows that the the culture and the family are in need of healing. I think that's fairly evident. The difficulty is that if if the family needs healing because somehow there's, let's say, using the analogy, some kind of disease that is affecting it, a spiritual disease. Well, if you don't properly diagnose the disease, then you can't like come up with the right remedy, right? So, so the, the operative question was, um, why are we where we're at? You know, how do we get here? How do we get to this place in our culture? And John Paul II, in his letter to families, offers uh, his diagnosis. He actually says that the human family is, is experiencing what he called a new Manichaeism. Now, that's a really fancy phrase, but Manichaeism is an ancient Christian heresy. Um, Augustine, St. Augustine was a Manichae <clears throat> before he converted to Christianity. Um, so it goes way back in the church's history. And you used to have like uh, apologetic discussions with, with Faustus, Mani right? With the Manichaean Faustus, right? Yeah. So like there's a, he actually became one of the greatest Catholic apologists against the Manichaeans. That's right. Um, but first was a Manichaean mm -hmm. auditor. Right. Um, anyway, so like, so this is something that's been around a while. It's one of these pesky heresies that keeps popping up again and again mm -hmm. over the church's history. In fact, um, the Dominican order, St. Dominic, founded the order of preachers to actually preach against a, a neo-Manichaean heresy wow. in the Middle Ages, uh, which I'll just use the more well-known name, the Albigensians. So John Paul II uses this phrase that we're experiencing a new Manichaeism. But what's interesting is he, he, is, he uses that phrase to label really some philosophical errors that have come down to us from the time of modernity and Rene <clears throat> Descartes, yeah, and and particularly modern rationalism. So, so basically, what John Paul II is saying is because of modern rationalism and the philosophical tradition that has come down from Descartes to us, with all the twists and turns in how it got to us, we now just think a different way about ourselves, about the world, about our bodies. Um, we have a different view of creation than, than a Christian view. Mm. And that has become so much a part of Western civilization and our culture that people just kind of pick it up through social learning just by living and breathing in the culture. They have this these wrong ideas about who we are and what the world's all about. And just by virtue of growing up in the culture that well, sort of like feeds it to us, right? If it's all around us. Right. It's, it's, and so us. in that sense, you could say like it's a spiritual <clears throat> disease that's airborne. Yeah. Everybody just kind of like breathes it in and then mm. they're infected by it. Right. And it changes the way that they think and, and yeah, about yeah. themselves and look at the world. One of the things the book does is kind of identify in the letter to families, what are the things that he finds, John Paul II finds in rationalism coming from Descartes that he labels as a new Manichaeism. I identified four things that you could say are the symptoms of this spiritual disease called the pneumatichism. Uh, one is anthropological dualism. That sounds like really fancy, but basically what it means is that 
We no longer understand ourselves as a person who is both body and soul as a composite, that we are just as much body as our soul, just as much soul as our body, one person, body and soul. Rather, we see ourselves as predominantly our mind or our consciousness, and our body is something we inhabit or use, but isn't really us. It's something we manipulate. It's something we can direct towards certain ends, but the body isn't me. Um, so that's w the number one uh, thing that he thinks is a problem um, and that it causes all sorts of difficulties for us. Second, he talks about a mechanistic view of the universe. So basically take that body-soul dualism that I just described um, and apply it to the whole universe. So basically, uh, Descartes believed that there were two kinds of substances in the world. There's mind, the thinking thing, and there's matter, which is pure extension. So uh, seeing the world this way, um, Descartes tried to say that like matter doesn't have any intrinsic um, purposes that matters just matter, and the one who has a mind can manipulate matter according to you know, his or her purposes. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> Descartes believed that there were no inherent purposes in nature. Man imposed his purpose. There was no like created order. Man imposed order on creation. Now, this is problematic because what it basically means is that uh, things don't mean anything. They only mean what we want them to mean. And things, th there's no particular way we should engage with the world, hmm. um, the, the world is just there for our manipulation. The body, by the way, is included in the material universe, pure extension, because it's not associated with mind. And so the body itself becomes part of the material universe you can just manipulate and use. And you can see how this is a problem, because like, if the body is us, right, and we use and manipulate the body, we're really using and manipulating persons. Mm. See, so that error means we're using people and objectifying people because they are their bodies in the traditional Christian view, in the view of the philosophy of like St. Thomas Aquinas. So, um, so the, the third challenge is a rejection of Thomas Aquinas's philosophy, uh, basically a rejection of metaphysics in itself. Um, and this is problematic because it's, it's, it's a good metaphysics that enables you to say things objectively true about the world. The particular thing in Thomas's philosophy that's rejected is his notion of creation. And this is really important because one of the things that John Paul II says is that the Cartesian tradition presents a very different way of seeing creation and our place in it. And I think that that's what indeed has happened. Like if you look at the world, we don't see creation as creation. That is creatures that come from a creator that gives them being and sustains them in being. Um, that, that somehow we don't understand that the things in the world were created by God for a purpose and therefore, they have a nature or an essence that God has given them and an end or goal for which they were made. So if you reject a metaphysics that enables you to say things that are objectively true about the world, well, then what that leads to is a relativistic view of the world, right? So this is 
what the fourth thing is that John Paul identifies is a tendency towards relativism and utilitarianism and ethics. Mm -hmm. Relativism being, I decide what's right and what's wrong. Well, there's, there's a very short step from me deciding I can manipulate the world however I want according to my ends and purposes, and then deciding that I can do the same thing with regards to morals, right? There's yeah. not a big step there. Mm -hmm. And then utilitarianism is the end justifies the means, right? Mm -hmm. So there, there are no inherent ends in nature, so what becomes the goal of my, my moral activity? Efficiency, production, yeah. right? And so we create a civilization where people are used in the same way that things are. And so that's the end of utilitarianism because persons shouldn't be used as means to ends, but what winds up happening in a utilitarian worldview is ultimately they are. And to give a sense of how the, all these different symptoms of the new Manichaeism are evident today, I mean, just, just think about, like, the issues of abortion or embryonic stem cell research. Don't you hear people say that, like, unborn children are just blobs of tissue and not really human? Well, that's an example of body-soul dualism. You know, like, or think about transgenderism, that somehow I think my body is what's wrong because inside I feel like something else. That's another example of body-soul dualism. Or think about, you know, sex and sexual morality. You know, people think sex can mean whatever they want it to mean instead of it actually meaning something and thus only being morally good when, like, between a man and a woman who are married and are leaving their sexual union open to life. Or, or think about how we even use people as means to ends. Uh, in the sexual arena, for sure, you can see this, but like, think about even eliminating unborn children if they stand in the way of our goals or euthanizing the elderly or sick because they're no longer productive and are perceived as a burden. Um, or, you know, using uh, workers as cogs in a wheel for like economic goals and not seeing them as persons with dignity or that their work should have dignity and their working conditions should be good. Or, or think about forcing contraception on underdeveloped nations as a way to control their populations or maybe even tying financial assistance to them adopting such programs. I mean, these are all practically speaking evidences of this new manichaeism. So that's great, Dave. I mean, uh, I mean, today's topic is understanding our secular age. Mm. But um, I mean, so what's the remedy? Uh, I mean, people in our culture today are flailing. Uh, they are anxious, uh, restless, disillusioned, depressed. We have more abundance than ever, but spiritually, we're experiencing a kind of scarcity, yeah. right? Uh, and this is because we don't know what we're made for. We don't know who we are. Yeah. No, th there's no doubt about that. Yeah, so a remedy has to have the right delivery system. If you don't have the right delivery system, you're not going to be able to uh, bring the remedy to the disease, right? Um, so John Paul II had a really interesting insight. You know, contemporary men and women are operating with this kind of focus on their consciousness, their inner life. You know, they, they focus a lot on looking inward and trying to understand themselves by how by their feelings, by their thoughts, um, by their by their lived experience. So John Paul II thought, well, if that's where contemporary men and women are, then that's got to be the delivery system, because to try to impose a different way of looking at themselves on them, 
like trying to come at them from the outside, talk about, oh, there's this, all this objective truth out there. When they're kind of focused inside, they can't even see it, right? Mm-hmm. So his approach was to start with the lived experience of the human person. And then from there, go outward towards a reality, a truth that that experience speaks to and connects to. He combines a phenomenological method, looking at experiences and lived experience, with metaphysical realism, St. Thomas Aquinas' view of the objective world. And his hope is to take the lived experience of human beings and then help human beings interpret it in light of that truth. Mm -hmm. So I've got to take what I'm experiencing and and kind of have an interpretive key for understanding it, you know? Um, And that's what he proposed. And that's what the theology of the body uses as its approach. And, And honestly, that's why it's so effective. Now, how does the theology of the body remedy the particular symptoms of this new Manichaeism that John Paul refers to? Well, we don't have a lot of time to discuss that in detail. And, and honestly, uh, everybody needs a reason to buy the book, right? So, <laughs> but, um, but the Sparknotes version is, one, it proposes an integral vision of man. That is, um, that we're a composite substance that is both body and soul to counter the anthropological dualism that Descartes put forth. Um, secondly, it would um, it shows the irreducibility of the human person to the world. That is that that the human person is is a radically different kind of being than animals or anything else in the world, due to his rational nature and personal subjectivity. In, in other words, that the human person is a someone and not a something. Third, um, the theology of the body returns to the metaphysics of St. Thomas Aquinas, especially his notion of creation. In fact, the theology of the body is an extended um, meditation on creation. Also, uh, St. Thomas's ideas about God creating with purposes and ends in mind. So that's, that's another important aspect that's brought into the theology of the body. And then fourth, um, the theology of the body reveals the the problems of relativism and utilitarianism, especially by showing how these are connected to the fallen state, that that to be this way, to think this way, is actually a part of our fallen inclination. Um, and then uh, also by showing how the only way to authentic human flourishing and happiness is by living in accordance with God's design for creation and the good that he has revealed we ought to do. So so these are the ways in which the theology of the body seeks to remedy these symptoms of the new Manichaeism. So Dave, this has been really great, and I'm really thrilled to death for you and and the release of your book, and we're certainly going to let our viewers and listeners know about it. Thanks so much, Mario. Hey guys, it's Mariama here for Who's That Saint, where I give you three clues on one saint for you to guess before the big reveal. Who's that saint? Clue one. Born in the mid-16th century, this saint lost her immediate family to smallpox as it ravaged her village. Though she contracted the disease herself, she was spared and was raised by her uncle. Who's that saint? 
Clue two. Bravely deciding to convert to Catholicism at the age of 19, this saint went against the norm of her culture and took a vow of chastity, proclaiming that she would only be married to Jesus Christ. Who's that saint? Clue three. Due to her newfound faith and vow of chastity, this saint faced ostracization from her community and eventually traveled to Montreal to find a Christian community that would welcome her. At the young age of 24, this saint died after living a life of prayer, fasting, and penance. Who's that saint? You guessed it, the saint that I am describing is St. Kateri Tekakwitha. St. Kateri is the first Native American to be recognized as a saint in the Catholic Church, belonging to the Mohawk tribe, and she is one of my favorites. Her bold faith in Christ led her to go against everything that she had known in her culture to follow Jesus. She was brave, humble, and understood that her time on earth was meant to be a preparation for heaven. She spent much of her time fasting and praying for the conversion of the Mohawk people. Another part of her story that I love is that just nine years before she was born, French Jesuits and now saints, Isaac Jokes and his companions, preached to her people and they were eventually martyred. To the world, their stories seemed to be hopeless and their mission a failure. But what we see started in the story of St. Isaac Jokes and his companions is fulfilled in the life of St. Kateri. Their preaching to her people ultimately allowed for her conversion, and now, through her intercession, the conversion of many others. In our own lives, we may feel as if our preaching of the gospel by word or deed may prove fruitless. However, we must recall that God only asks us to be faithful to His plan for us here and now and allow Him to work out the rest. May we, like St. Kateri and Saints Isaac Jokes and his companions before her, aspire to sow seeds of grace by the witness of our lives. St. Kateri Tekakwitha, pray for us. Hey everybody, this is Jack Garno, Array of Hope's Director of Music and Audio Production, and welcome back to The Music Corner. If you've been listening to The Music Corner in our podcast, you know that our music department has some very exciting releases on the horizon. Our music department is constantly writing, recording, and producing, and we couldn't be more excited about getting ready to release probably an album's worth of material in the next year, much of what you've been hearing on this podcast. Two weeks ago, I gave you a preview of Homeland, a song we wrote just two weeks before flying to Nashville to record it. On this episode, I want to share with you the other song we wrote alongside Homeland as we were prepping for our session at Ocean Way. The song I'll share with you today is called Everlasting. The original idea was conceived by our lead singer, Brienne. She had been reading Psalm 90, and in verse 2 it reads, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What a powerful sentiment this verse conveys. To me, it's a reflection of the eternal nature of God. He has no beginning nor end, since He is the Alpha and the Omega. He always was, always is, and always will be. It's quite an abstract reality to grasp, but let us remember that St. John Paul II reminds us that faith and reason, in light of the teachings of the Catholic Church, are never opposed. Another lyric I love, that derives again directly from Psalm 90, is establish the work of our hands. What a beautiful reminder that even though we are acting in the world, it is only because God is enabling us to exist and to act. 
And so we are eternally dependent on Him for even the things we take responsibility for in our everyday lives. So check out the chorus to Everlasting. Everlasting, to everlasting you everybody we got some exciting news we have a whole new array of hope app and channel a video destination where everyone can find meaningful and inspiring videos and resources to help bring them closer to god this is available on your desktop roku apple tv iphones and android mobile phones and tablets this channel has movies short faith-filled segments live events and programs you've got to check it out Sign up by going to watch.arrayofhope.net and then download the app at the App Store by just typing in Array of Hope. Our guest today is Father Dwight Longenecker. He was raised in an evangelical home and was ordained as a priest in the Church of England. He spent 10 years working as a freelance Catholic writer, contributing to over 25 magazines and papers and journals in Britain, Ireland, and the USA. He's also written 15 books and booklets on the Catholic faith. In December of 2006, he was ordained a Catholic priest under the special pastoral provision for married former Anglican clergy. He now serves as a pastor at Our Lady of Rosary Parish in Greenville, South Carolina. Let's welcome Father Dwight Longenecker. Okay. Welcome. And here we are. Uh, we have Father Dwight Longenecker in the house, in person, at the Array of Hope studio. Uh, I'm super excited to be with you, Father. Uh, normally, we're speaking to our guests remotely, but today we're honored to have you here in the studio. We have you here for two days. We're recording quite a bit of content, and we're doing a series with you, and we're excited to be with you. Great. So, uh, Thanks welcome. for the invitation. Thanks. Yeah, it's so great to have you here in New Jersey. Um, so before we start, I always like to get a little bit of a background, some context as to why you're a priest and, and how that happened. But what happened before that? So I know that you're not a cradle Catholic. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, I was brought up in Pennsylvania in a very evangelical Protestant home. My ancestors for seven generations back were Protestant Christians, um, Amish and Mennonite, uh, and so wow. pretty extreme and radical Christians. Wow. And um, in that Protestant home that I was brought up in, uh, we were sort of Bible-believing Protestant Christians, not anti-Catholic, but I guess it's true to say we thought that Catholics needed to get saved. Mm. What was the moment in your life where you started to have a drawing toward your faith, drawing toward God, understanding Yeah, it was God. actually a, about a 20-year process. Uh, after high school, I went to Bob Jones University, which is a very um, fundamentalist college in Greenville, South Carolina. And while I was there, uh, I, be I became an Anglican, and I also came down with a serious illness called Anglophilia, the love of everything English. Okay, uh. I've been reading English literature, C.S. Lewis, T.S. Eliot, all those wow. great writers. And um, I was drawn to the Anglican Church. And so while I was at college, I actually became an Anglican and felt the call to become an Anglican priest. 
Wow. So um, the door opened up then for me to go over to England, actually, to study for the um, ministry in the Church of England. Here in the States, the Anglican Church is the Episcopal Church. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't want to be an Episcopalian. I wanted to be Church of England in England. Wow. So the door opened up for me to go and do that. It was wonderful. And, and what was that like? Is it like a Catholic priest going through seminary and theology class? Tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, I had to go to theolo what they call theological college, which is the equivalent of seminary for three years, hmm. um, and be accepted by a bishop for ordination and go through a sort of you know, an interview process and so forth. And I got through that, and then I was ordained as a priest in the Church of England. This would have been in the early 80s. Um, and my dream was to be um, an Anglican country vicar. If you've ever been to England, you see these beautiful old churches in the English villages. If you've watched English TV shows, you've seen wow. programs like Father Brown, yeah, programs yeah. like that, yeah, yeah. Uh, with a beautiful old English, ancient church. Uh, so my dream was to be the priest in an old church like that in a little English village. And uh, it actually came true. Beautiful. And how long were you an Anglican priest? For about 15 years. Um, I first went into a job like a parochial vicar, an assistant priest. Then I served as a chaplain in Cambridge for a couple of years before then going to my own parish, which was on the Isle of Wight, a little island off the south coast of England. Wow. Okay, so this is the million-dollar question. So you were an Anglican priest for 15 years, and yeah. then something changed in you? Well, during this time, if you know the Anglican Church, you can be— um, there's like three different branches of the Anglican Church, the Anglo-Catholics, the Evangelicals, and what they call Broad Church. Broad Church is kind of like in between the two, uh, and Anglo-Catholics do things in a very Catholic way within the Anglican Church. Mm. They would have the rosary, they would have processions, they would have um, you know, pilgrimages to Marian shrines and so forth. And so during my time in the Anglican Church, I moved from being more evangelical up to being more Anglo-Catholic in my understanding. And once I had that sacramental understanding and understanding of the priesthood within the Anglican Church, um, I then was drawn more and more to the actual, to the Catholic Church. So, um, you know, as an Anglican priest, you were being drawn more and more to the, the teachings of Catholicism. And then yeah. at some point in time, you had to make, a, you made a call, you had to make a decision. And what yeah. was that like? Uh, one of the big turning points was in the summer of 1987, when I was still an Anglican priest, I did a wonderful life-changing pilgrimage. I hitchhiked from England to Jerusalem, wow. staying in Catholic monasteries the all along thumb? the way. The big thumb? Yeah, I thumbed you... my way all the way. I was a much younger man then, of so course. a different time then, too. Yeah. Uh, and... That was a wonderful experience because it was kind of like I'd, I had gone from America to England back 500 years. Wow. To the Reformation time. Yeah. And then as I traveled across France and Italy and Greece, step by step as I moved east, I was going. it was like I was going back in time. And everything there, of course, was Catholic, 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 until you actually get to the, the Holy Land and walk in the footsteps of our Lord and the Apostles. And there it's the Catholic Church that you find. And for me, it was kind of a realization that uh, what St. John Henry Newman says, to be deep into history is to cease to be Protestant. Mm. So going back into history like that also plunged me further and further into the Catholic faith. Was that a, a shock to your being in the sense that, oh no, I'm on the verge of changing my life, really? Well, my younger brother, was five five of us in our family, my younger brother had already married a Catholic and become a Catholic. But when I took this step and therefore gave up my career, my home, my life that I planned and everything that I, I was looking forward to, that rever reverber reverberated into my family much more profoundly. Uh, and after that, my older brothers and my older sister also became Catholic. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and 
I would think it, it would be a little bit more severe for you because you're an Anglican priest. You'd already rooted yourself in that denomination, right? So, uh, so it, it's been quite a journey for you. How long was the transformation between you realizing that you needed to become Catholic to the point where you were ordained a Catholic priest? So, so it took, it took another 10 years in the Lord's the Lord's timing for that to actually happen. Yeah. So uh, I know. So you left England and then you ended up, I think, in South Carolina, right? Where you, yes. you were ordained in America, right? Yeah. So this is the million-dollar question that our listeners and our viewers always ask. So, uh, so the people watching and listening realize that, you know, Father uh, – Dwight Longenecker is married, and people are scratching their head. Well, how is this possible? How can a Catholic right. priest be you know married? But there are exceptions. Maybe you can articulate since you were married as an Anglican priest. How yeah, the the question of priests being celibate is a discipline in the church. It's not a doctrine. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the Catholic Church can change its disciplines. The disciplines are things like what liturgy you use, um, what calendar you follow whether priests are celibate or not, rules about religious orders and so forth. These disciplines can be changed by the church, and so or exceptions can be made. So this discipline of priests being celibate is a an ancient discipline and um, tradition in the church, but the church can make exceptions. So in our case, what happened in the late 1970s was uh, a small group of Episcopalian priests here in the U.S. applied to Rome and said, we understand that in the 1950s, Pope Pius XII made some exceptions for, I think it was Lutheran pastors in Sweden or Denmark, mm. for these married men to come into the Catholic Church and be ordained as Catholic priests, even though they were married. Um, and the Pope, therefore, made an exception to the rule of celibacy. He gave them a dispensation. So these Episcopal priests wrote and said, could you do the same for us, please? And eventually got to, to the desk of Pope John Paul II, and he said, be generous to these men. So something was set up called the pastoral provision, through which um, a former Anglican and sometimes a Lutheran uh, ministers who are married can apply to their bishop. And if their bishop approves, he can apply to Rome on a case-by-case -case basis uh, for them to receive a dispensation from the vow of celibacy, allowing them to be ordained as priests. Wow. Um that's kind of a cool journey. It's kind of a cool story. Well, uh, whenever I tell the story, I always give uh, great praise and honor to my fellow priests uh, who, of course, the majority of them uh, bear with the discipline of celibacy with, in my experience, with good heart, good will, and sure. good cheer. So um, you're, a, you're a parish pastor, right? You have your own parish. Um, and you're also an author. And you're a very prolific one, I might add. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about your books and, and why writing has become a vital part of your priesthood. Well, all the way back in college, I had a, a real um, gift, I guess, for communication. I liked writing, liked literature, wanted to write. And it was really only when I became a Catholic that I actually found I had something to write about. When I was an Anglican, it was just me and my religion. But when I became a Catholic, I had a message to communicate. So um, once I became a Catholic, my writing really began to take off. I began to get some ideas for books. That's when the books began to produ be produced. I was doing some low-level journalism before that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's expanded into a ministry of communicating the Catholic faith, I think, um, in a way that I hope is accessible. One of my great heroes is C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. uh, and C.S. Lewis had a great gift of um, taking complicated ideas and discussing complicated classical ideas and making them accessible for people. 
and um, I hope if I if I do have a gift, that that might be the gift I have too. You definitely do. You definitely do. So our theme today is uh, understanding our secular age, and I know that your books, uh, in particular, a few of them lend itself to that. Can you elaborate yeah. a bit? Yeah, I think one of the problems with Christianity in the modern age is that Christianity is uh, whether it's Catholic Christianity or Protestant Christianity, we're living within two thousand years of tradition. And within those 2,000 years, the understanding of the Christian faith has evolved and grown and developed in many good ways, but also in some other ways where we take an awful lot of it for granted. We can't see it with fresh eyes. Um, It has therefore also been compromised by the secular world we live in, so that our Christianity today is now kind of infected. And an awful lot of things that we've assumed and carried on from Christianity in our culture— come from Christianity, but we've forgotten those roots. If you take, for example, um, a contemporary issue like racism, everybody's talking about racism. Well, the whole idea that you should actually treat someone decently and treat someone as an equal and that everybody is created equally in God's image, that's a Christian idea, Hmm. okay? And that has come into our culture from Christianity, but an awful lot of people have forgotten that as a Christian idea, and they just go with racism being anti-racist as kind of like the only virtue. That is a great virtue, and I'm not down on that, but I'm saying the roots of it are Christianity, and we've kind of lost some of those roots. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, we, we've done some work here uh, on one of your books that deals with isms, uh, and maybe you could talk about your book, that its title, and you know what it's about. These different isms I call masks of atheism. Uh, it's my contention that America, modern-day America in the 21st century is a very atheistic culture. But the atheism is not explicit. It's not something which is in your face. You know, we grew up uh, during the—and we can remember the communist uh, empire in Eastern Europe. When I was in high school, for instance, uh, Russia controlled uh, all of Eastern Europe. and it was, it was an explicitly atheistic culture where they were stamping out religion, they were closing seminaries, they were closing religious publishing houses, and they were teaching atheism in the schools. Modern American atheism is not explicit like that. It's much more implicit. It's woven into our culture, into our advertising, into our entertainment, into our education, into our politics, at very many different levels, but we can't see it because it's not explicit. It's hidden in all these ways, and therefore, I contend it's much more powerful and much more insidious. And that book that we're talking about is Beheading Hydra, so which is a very interesting title. So I, I even want to ask you a question regarding how that title yeah, came to be. If you remember your um, your literature classes from high school, maybe you did some Greek literature, and you came across various different beasts, um, you know, Scylla and Charybdis, the uh, one-eyed monster, the Cyclops, and, and, and therefore, uh, and so forth and so on. And one of them was the Hydra. The Hydra was one of the beasts that the hero Hercules had to go and deal with. And the Hydra was a multi-headed beast that lived in the swamps of Lerna. The swamps of Lerna were at one of the gateways to hell, one of the gateways to the underworld. And this beast had uh, multiple heads, which were all um, in in the form of snakes, venomous snakes. Uh, And if you cut off the head of one, two more grew back in its place. So it was a beast from hell, which was like a terrible dragon with multiple serpentine heads. And Hercules had to kill this thing. And so beheading Hydra is um, how do you deal with all these different isms, which are like the the heads of Hydra? 
Yeah. And uh, I want to let our viewers and listeners know that we're actually doing a series on your book uh, soon to be released. We're very excited about that. So tell us a little bit about some of the current isms that we experience in a culture today. Well, the first thing to remember is, like I said, these isms are woven into our culture. They're woven into every aspect of our culture from the foundation of America, uh, right back for 500 years of the philosophical development in Europe and then spilling over into the United States. And therefore, um, I mean, who digs down to look at the foundations of their house? Nobody, okay? Therefore, it's very deeply buried in our psyche, very deeply buried in our culture, and we don't see them. Mm. So I've tried to spin these out, these 16 different isms, and show how um, where they come from uh, why they're insidious, why they're dangerous, and how we can spot them in our culture today. Well, give us a, a couple of examples of code. Yeah, one of the examples is like the great granddaddy of them all is materialism. Mm. Materialism is not just going to the mall to shop until you drop, okay? Materialism is the underlying philosophy that makes you believe that that's actually going to satisfy you, okay? Materialism is the underlying belief that the material world, what you can see and taste and touch and sense, is all there is. There isn't anything else. Okay, and that is essentially a form of atheism, because if you believe the material world is the only thing there is, then you can't believe in God either, because God is the ultimate invisible reality. So materialism is all through our society, and it manifests itself, of course, uh, through our dependence on all the goodies we've got, our dependence on our salary, our pension plan, our insurance plans, all these material forms of security that we built around us, we have treated basically as the thing we trust in rather than trusting in God. It's awesome. G give us another ism. Well, I love scientism it. grows out of materialism. Uh -huh. Scientism is the thing which, as a result of materialism, makes people believe that the only kind of truth they can trust is the truth which is established by scientific experimentation. And it comes out in its in typical conversation where people believe that science has disproved religion. And so this is, time and again, these isms, nobody would say, well, I'm a science, I follow scientism, uh, but they actually do when they believe that science has disproven religion. Wow. And therefore, this is inf infiltrated into the church as well, where uh, in the last 50 or 60 years, even in the Catholic church, there's a kind of anti-supernaturalism where the clergy are a bit shy about talking about heaven and hell and angels and demons and spiritual warfare and the reality of the invisible realm in our religion. But I always come back and say, but that's what religion is about. You know, religion is whatever religion it is, whether it's Catholicism or whether it's paganism or Hinduism or Buddhism, it's about man mankind's interaction yeah. with the invisible realm. That's what it, That's what religion is. So if you teach something other than that, it's not even religion. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, I've had conversations with colleagues and, and family members and say, look, you know, some of this stuff is too heady for me. And I, I just want to be one with God and have a relationship with God. But I always say to them, and I refer back to my own faith journey is that I actually grew closer when I developed my intellect and understood more. So maybe you could share the importance of just understanding what's happening around around us, what's happening in our church, and how it can help our spiritual journey. Sure. One of, one of the things which um, a couple of sociologists about five or ten years ago have noted in American religion is, is that it has evolved into becoming what they call moralistic therapeutic deism. And that means basically moralism rules and regulations for being a nice, respectable person, therapy. This religion is going to help you with your addiction problem or help you with your troublesome teens or help you with your marriage or help you lose weight 
okay, therapy. And deism is the ancient, well, not not so ancient, the 18th century belief that there is a God, but he doesn't really get involved in the natural world. He's on the other side of the clouds and he's probably having a nap. Mm-hmm. Okay. So moralistic therapeutic deism, that an awful lot of American Christianity has become no more than that. So a lot of these big Protestant churches, all they teach is moralism, how to be a good, respectable, nice person, and maybe to be politically involved with political activism. Mm-hmm. Okay, therapy, how to make yourself a better person, how to make your family a better family, how to have a you know how to manage your income and so forth. And deism, God is there. We have a kind of vague spirituality towards God, but he's not really involved in this world. And this kind of religion has infiltrated the Catholic Church as well. And it's the death of religion, okay? It's not a religion at all. It's just a man-made therapy and rules for respectability, mm. okay? We're talking about a living God who really need, who demands to be worshipped and whom we come in with into his awesome presence. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, do you want to just make some commentary uh, on just the, the state of uh, just the culture today, how people are lacking hope, they're lacking uh, just a sense of, of security, because of a multiple factors, the status of the the status of the church, the status of our culture, the status of their families. Um, as a priest, how could you offer hope to people that are seeking it and drawing them back to a church that sometimes they're confused about or disagree with? Well, there's a deep hunger for God in the human heart. That's how we're made. Mm. Uh, we're made in His image. Therefore, we're, we, we're made in a way to long for God and, and to long for a relationship with God, a real vital relationship with Almighty God. And moralistic therapeutic deism just doesn't cut it. It's not good enough because all it does is try to make us a better into better people by pulling ourselves up on our own bootstraps. Hmm. And and people know that religion should be more than that. So they hunger and they thirst for relationship with God. Now, one of the sad things about this is that because the Christian churches have been tr- have been preaching moralistic therapeutic deism, people are sense that that's not enough, not enough. So they're leaving. Do you want to share a little bit with our viewers and listeners what you're up to and how they can get in touch with some of your well, work? When I came back to America in 2005, I began a blog just to write stuff that I couldn't get published anywhere else, mm-hmm. and it began to take off. So I now have a blog website, DwightLongenecker.com, awesome. where people can browse my books and be in touch and read my blog and, and touch it and tap into some of the podcasts and the video material that I have there. What motivates you? What gives you the desire to do that? I have ideas. It's just Okay. I can relate they to that. They usually come when I'm walking the dog or in the shower, and I'll be thinking about something. Oh, yeah, there's a blog post. There's something And so the share. ideas are there, They and, and, and uh, they need to be expressed. I think the other thing the Lord has given me, which is a gift, so I'm not bragging about it, but I think I have an ability to make connections that other people don't make. Um, some people said that um, creativity is, is, the, is the knack of making connections mm. and putting things together, which other people would not naturally put together. So sometimes I have a gift to see that and see where the culture connects with the point in theology and connect those for people and help them to see it. And I guess I'm motivated too when I get feedback from my readers, mm-hmm. when people say, gosh, Father, this book has changed my life or um, your blog is really helping my kids to come back to the faith or something like that. 
That's awesome. Uh, well, this culture needs connections, right? I mean, we need to be drawn to the truth and, and the beauty of, of Christ. And we all are relational. We all want to have that relationship, as you mentioned. Uh, and, uh, you know, God bless your, your work. God bless your vocation. God bless your family. Uh, I want to thank you so much for, you know, hanging with me and, and hanging out with us today. It's been great to be here. Thanks very much. All right. God bless you, Father. Well, we've come to the end of this podcast, and I'm so glad that you joined us. I want to remind you to please share this podcast with as many people as possible. Let everybody know. I also want to thank our donors and our supporters. If you've been blessed by our work and this podcast, please give back by going to our donation page at our website at arrayofhope.org. Our social media keeps us connected to our faith through our music, our videos, and our daily reflections. So please check it out. It will be really helpful and give you lots of inspiration throughout the day. Also want to let you know that we pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet on Instagram every day at 3 p.m. So please join us as we pray together as a universal church. And lastly, the Ray of Hope channel is producing this Catholic variety show called Rise Up Live. You should check it out and see when it airs next. You will really enjoy it with your family. So thanks for joining us today. And there's always a reason for hope. This is Mario Costabile. Until next time, peace. Peace.